Today we've got six, seven, eight people right now. Cool. And if, we, if that, um, if Aaron shows up, that'd be what? Another, so that'd be nine, six, nine, yep. We are live. We are live. So <clears throat> welcome everyone. This is Matthew Gates, IPM specialist today. I am leading the panel talking about integrated pest management generally. I just got off of a live stream on Instagram with a, a gentleman by the name of Aaron, uh, the grower. Uh, and ATG Acres at ATG Acres on Instagram. And um, he appears to be having trouble. Uh, I am be I'm being made aware of this immediately. So uh, I'll just start with the introductions here. He and I will be talking about IPM, some biocontrol information, and specifically two pests that we'll be talking about. Um, we're focusing about our thrips and aphids because it's springtime, well into springtime, and that's when their populations increase exponentially. So um, to start, please introduce yourself, Jack. I'm Jack Greenstock. You can find me on Instagram at Jack Greenstock, as well as Cannabis. And I'm also on Twitter at Jack underscore Greenstock. I'm a cultivator. I think uh, I'll let whoever is up next go. Yes, uh, Spartan. Hello, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. Uh, I'm a grower here in Michigan. You can find my home grow at Spartan Grown on Instagram or the commercial grow at Mitten Canico on Instagram. Also, I'm all over YouTube, so just <laughs> look for growing shows. I'm 50-50 chance I'm on it. Ain't that the truth? Predicative breeding. Kyle. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, my name is Kyle Breeder. I'm a uh, cannabis breeder. If anybody's looking for some good genetics, pbreeding.com, the letter pbreeding.com. And uh, I'm happy to, yeah, I'm happy to be here, man. I'm excited to see uh, how this, this combo goes. Yeah, I'm going to be looking forward to your insight too. Um, Dr. MJ Coco, what's up? Hey, Matt. Uh, yeah, Dr. MJ Coco from cocoforcannabis.com. We publish articles and guides on the science and practice of growing cannabis. Um, I am in my other life, a college professor, and grades are due on Tuesday, so I'm only going to be able to stick around for the first half of the show, but I am looking forward to it, Matthew. Well, thanks. I appreciate that, and I know how, um, how arduous, in the best possible ways I can be, so uh, no, no problem with regards to... Uh, uh, yeah, the best possible arduous. That's good. I like <laughs> The best possible arduous might be the diametric of the silver lining in the cloud. <laughs> um, but uh, American one with the Akeens, what's up? Hey, Matthew. Good to see everybody. I hope everyone's having a great weekend. Uh, I'm the American one on YouTube and the American one with Akeens on IG. Just look for the uh, guy with the American top hat. And um, I'm looking forward to tonight's show. Uh, as am I. You were also on the live stream, and I saw that uh, you were noting how I do care about uh, uh, taxonomy and the correct naming schema of uh, bugs and that sort of a thing. And finally, until we have Aaron, Noah. Noah the Groa. What's up? How's it going, everybody? Uh, yeah, I'm Noah the Groa from Instagram. Uh, you can find me there if you're interested in asking me any questions. And as always, I'm happy to be here. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so to start off with IPM, with regards to IPM, we've talked a few times about general IPM tips and ideas and thoughts. But I'm curious if um, anyone here is dealing or has recently dealt with a thrips or aphid problem 
in their grow or if they know someone who has. Oh, I've, def- I've never had to deal with aphids, but I've had to deal with thrips. But I've never seen, I haven't even seen aphids in my outdoor gardens. I don't know, maybe it's too cold in my area. I don't know. I, can, I don't know much about the aphids because I've never had to deal with them. But uh, thrips, yeah, I, I'm familiar with them. This is kind of the time of year for them. Uh, sometimes, I, I don't know if this year it seems like it's, it's a little bit more. Like they seem to, the, the pressure seems to be a little bit more than normal on the thrips, but thrips don't tend to um, strike fear in me so much. They're, they're pretty, uh, it takes a whole lot of negligence on the grower's part to let thrips ruin a crop. I'll just put it that way. I think there's some validity to that statement. Thrips are usually not gonna be lethal to a cultivation space, which is, I think it's very helpful to keep that in mind for a lot of people um, who might not be used to dealing with thrips in particular, aphids also, unless the population gets outrageously large um, and they and they literally suck the plant dry, um, which has been a problem for some sucking mouthpart insects in various plants. Like they just, the pressure, it's almost like turning on a, a like a hundred mini faucets that are like constantly dripping the water like a tap. And um, that can happen sometimes. Um, I like so that yeah. analogy. That's a really good analogy. Oh, oh, so Aaron is here. Aaron is here. Aaron. What's up, fellas? <clears throat> hey, so um, I'd like you to, if you want, uh, introduce yourself a little bit. Just a little blurb about you. Sure. Um, I've for 15 years and pretty much dedicated my life to this. Um Certainly not a master at anything, but my focus is soil, um, IPM, lighting, all things grow. Um, I have an off-grid grow in Northern California, and I am setting up a commercial grow in Oklahoma right now. That's very fascinating. Um, Oh, Ken Ken's on as well. Ken Ken, do you want to introduce yourself? Ah, yes. Sorry. Was no running, problem. Was running a little bit behind. Uh, glad to be able to make the show. Uh, I don't want to ruin the flow too much. Yeah, I'm Can Can Grow, and I'm, uh, I'm excited to uh, be part of the panel once again. No problem. So today's topic is IPM stuff. Um, and I, I think it is helpful to, like, describe the sort of geographic place that you are. Some people, the longtime um, viewers, probably know where some of us are because we've mentioned it a few times. But um, and if you don't want to mention exactly where, that's no problem. But like, no, no, not, not at all. I'm uh, I'm just outside of Toronto, Ontario, in Canada. So uh, I I think that's a great point. Definitely um, different challenges with regards to IPM in different geographical locations. So uh, I'm excited to uh, discuss all of this on the show. I know that. Um, so I'm from San Diego, for example, I'm in San Diego currently and like California has been having a big issue with um, the cannabis aphid and, and cannabis, of course. And I think, I feel like in the Northern sort of latitudes that maybe the problem is less pronounced, especially be, if you get winter, that's a real winter and it, uh, you know, really destroys the, the aphids um, until next season. Cause overwintering, 
by them is usually done uh, as eggs. A lot of aphids have this sort of um, adaptive trait, but it still gets quite cold up there in Michigan, doesn't it? And uh, Canada. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, truth truth be told, I mean, at least uh, where I'm at in my circles, I haven't really seen or heard of any, um, you know, uh, challenges with regards to the cannabis. You were saying the same thing, right, Spartan? Yeah, exactly. That's what I was kind of just thinking. It might be the cold just kind of keeps them away. I don't know. I'm not really, like I said, I haven't really looked into the cannabis aphid because I haven't had to deal with it. So it's not one of the things I've researched a lot on. Well, uh, so I research on it in general, I would say. Um, but partly for that reason, I think a lot of people, like, I think it was not such a big issue in like the Eurasian continent, at least. Um, but it has been known for over like 200 years, which I find is crazy. Yet we don't really have a ton of like, because people have been growing hemp even in modernity. So the fact that we don't have a whole lot of research, at least not that I've seen, is kind of interesting to me that sort of becoming a problem all at once. And I'm sure there's a lot of obvious factors that people can think of for that, but it still is kind of crazy to me. Whereas like thrips, for example, super generalist, um, you know, almost like 30% of research is on Western flower thrips in particular of all the thrift species out there so it really directs what we think about Could you talk a little bit about what you're seeing with the uh, hemp cultivation and um, I think it's aphidius calmani I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly but it's a predatory wasp I believe and uh, what are your thoughts on that as far as like early feelings on using that as a preventative measure or, or counteracting to the cannabis aphid it was actually a part of a topic that me and Aaron were talking about earlier um and that was that i do think that they have a good role with uh, preventative measures but they can they can be difficult to implement super effectively um partly because of how they parasitize so um there is kind of a one-to-one so like one adult lays one egg which develops into one larva and then one adult and kills one aphid so unlike a, a predator that might eat a hundred aphids or 50 aphids or 30 aphids or something like that um, without an inundative release it can be hard to achieve management especially in a population that is uh, growing very exponentially Um, at the same time if you have a bunch of natural parasitoid wasps aphidius colomani or metricariae or irvi or something um, in tandem that could be a very different situation in addition to like hoverflies, in addition to like aphid eating flies or something like that. So in, in, in concert, perhaps even way better, but alone, um, I think they have some major issues for a lot of people. I'll, uh, I'll add on to that. Just, just saying that um, Colomani in particular <clears throat> are better at eating some of the smaller aphids Um you're better off like like Matt was saying with the multi-tiered approach. If you're going with the Phidias, you know, you're you're gonna have to do weekly dumps and you're gonna have to do multiple species, Irvi, Colomani, and um the other one. It sounds like it's also Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut off the scientific name, but it also sounds like it's really pivotal to get there 
early as possible on this one specifically because if they are like a one-to-one uh i guess predator to pest and you can catch it as early as possible obviously um that's super important so uh, i'm just going to go ahead and sh- shout out crop, crop scouting because we should all be doing it probably more than some of us are and uh, i think it's always important to talk about with ipm absolutely whether you're a commercial organization or a small uh one, one person grow um super probably the best you know it's like the saying right that we we talked about right the best fertilizer is a farmer's shadow or some iteration of that because it's probably the best return on your your uh time i feel like um and i think that from an ipm standpoint another big thing is just like physical blocking of 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 ingress if uh if you're able to do this sort of a thing but like aaron for example you cannot do that in your grow no no uh my grow is totally open to the environment so i i actually i actually depend on the environment in a lot of ways especially with my ipm protocol aureus is the perfect example aureus and Cidiosis, the minute pirate bug um indigenous aureus incredibly effective um Farm-reared aureus from Canada haven't had great luck because they're just not adapt to this area. And they are outcompeted, I think, in one way or another, as Matt and I kind of discussed at length. Yeah, and that's the only thing that can happen. I'm curious, like, um, from both, like, a cheap home grow perspective and also perhaps a, a sort of a commercial perspective, even... Like, you know, they have this, the business adage is location, location, location. Like, how foundational do you guys think that, that is for sort of successful cultivation? Like, would it be fair to say all, all other things being equal, um, you know, you would, of course, want a conducive environment over a not conducive environment. And that could make things maybe prohibitively costly because you might have to do things like this. I think from like a cheap home grow to a commercial environment, that makes sense. Cause like, if you're thinking about like a house, I'd rather cultivate in the basement in a lot of circumstances than like the attic. Somebody was talking about that in one of the chats I was in earlier, the attic just gets really hot. It's going to be a lot more difficult to manage the temperature than a basement where the temperature is a lot cooler typically. So you'll be able to get by with a lot less climate regulation and have a lot easier opportunity. And if you even think about that, like scaled up, I heard earlier on your live, um, ATG acres you were talking about uh, you have a lot of like certain things that you have to account for being open air and like you use knockdowns because um, there's so much pollen that falls from trees around you that you're just going to have certain types of pests and uh, knowing that and accounting for that you can just sort of work that into your IPM regiment and it's I think it's all about accounting for the environment that you're in and if you can get a piece of land where there's not a bunch of trees around for a commercial cultivation it's going to be a little easier to manage than if you're in an area where there's bunch of trees that are going to dump pollen and other sorts of uh, things that will bring pests. I totally agree with that. Yeah. In regard to, um, in regard to that though, you know, you could, you could keep traveling down there and say that a sealed room would be best. And, 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 and for some people, I think it is. Um, but I think there are, we are kind of seeing in the industry a split, like, there's two, there's two paths. There's the sealed room path. Um, and there's the, uh, you know, I don't want to say organic because a lot of sealed rooms use organics as well, but sort of more natural path. And 
I have found myself. Yeah, there's like the sealed room approach and the biodynamic approach, right? Where you're trying to sort of invite things to to work symbiotically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I'd like to call it, I would say like more like an ecology driven approach, right? And, and, and that doesn't mean like not that doesn't mean that the others aren't like environmentally friendly or anything like that. But like, yeah, there seems to be sort of a Yeah, like, that's exactly what I was going for. Ecological yeah. approach. I like that. I like my, that too. My inputs like I use organic soils, but I'm not like Brandon where he's got like a live, you know, a whole bunch of uh, hypoaspis miles and uh rove beetles and a whole bunch of other stuff like um you can use organic inputs without having a completely living soil and uh ecosystem like that yeah definitely and you know it's like from a professional perspective it's certainly a thing that i i think is integral to consider if you're like when i do site evaluations that's the you know first thing that i do is I try to get that information and I look it up before I even, and then I also, I, I like to actually visit the physical location for a bunch of different reasons. But one of the things that I like to do is I do like to walk around the grounds if there are grounds and property and see what I can see. And a lot of times I can see the problems, uh, especially with pests on like property plants and that sort of a thing. And knowing that like, it's in a it's in the breadbasket of an agricultural mecca like California uh, versus like the sort of more southern maybe in like the chaparral or in, or my friend I have a friend who's grow, who's living up in um the high deserts and he definitely has a different pest situation up there I think a lot of times he uh, benefits from the sparse nature of the sort of high chaparral area kind of up in like uh, Bishop area of California. On the opposite end, like Spartan and uh, people up in Canada with the snow, they have a long period of time where if they're indoor cultivators, they're not as worried about bringing something from outside inside because all 90, 99% of the stuff is killed off in the snow. So it might be overwintering, but uh, it's a lot safer as far as coming in from outside and not worrying about bringing in pests. <laughs> But with that, with the coming of the cold at the beginning, like in the fall, that's when the bugs want to come inside. All the bugs want to come inside. <laughs> that's definitely true. <laughs> um, yeah, I yeah, think there's I mean, also I, something there along those same lines, Matthew, that um, in terms of sort of the urban rural setting that you find yourself in, um, you know, I'm just in the middle of like a megalopolis. There's not a lot of agriculture at all around here. And there is a lot of pesticide use. So I think that uh, it would be a really different situation living amongst farms. Definitely. Um, I remember reading a research report uh, that sort of assessed like the fragment, the fragmented nature of like an urban a highly urban and even suburban sort of landscape versus like rural landscapes. I think it was in South America, but it's regardless, it's the same sort of a thing. And it's interesting to consider like what sort of organisms, what insects in particular did well in those um, circumstances and from what sort of ecological niches they hail from, you know, what do they do? Uh, You know, most of them are insects that fly. A lot of them are like little beetles that like, live on like mountains and things because like yeah cities are basically giant stone crags and 
the pesticides almost kind of remind me of like how like poisonous gases can come from this is going to sound like I'm insulting where you live, but like, like, you know, you have a lot of things going on in the atmosphere much more. Oh, I had an insult. Yeah. I'm not the one that's spraying the pesticides, but I mean, the, the city sprays them and like the condos association that I live in sprays for roaches and stuff like that everywhere outside. So yes. um, yeah, you just sort of in amongst that stuff. Right. But don't forget he's getting that extra CO2, you know, and, and people in the city, people don't realize, I think if you check the yeah. background levels in your home, uh, your CO2 might not be the atmospheric level. Oftentimes it's a little bit higher. And I think a that's little bit, a lot of bit higher, dude, just from people breathing in a house. Like I took my CO2 meter throughout the house, every room in the, like, especially like living room, bedrooms, it would peg the meter. It would, it would just said too high. It just, it was so high that it wouldn't even read on the meter. Thanks. You got plans? Of course I got plants. Like house plants? Yes. Yep. Like I plants in almost every room. Like I at this point. There's also year, four people in this house, so there's more than just me. Yeah, and if yeah. you have pets too, running around and things like that. And, and but, if uh, you're sealed up for winter, sealed up for air conditioning, it can do other things to your sort of the air exchange within your living space. So. I do what, with dogs also. <laughs> what was the high range of the meter? Because. The highest I've seen, I've, I've, the question, yeah. I've seen it over 2,500 personally. I've seen the meter say 2,500. So I know it goes at least wow. 2,500. Wow. Yeah. That seems rather high. Wow. I think over 2,000 is where it starts to get a little dangerous. 5,000 and above is definitely like quickly dangerous to humans. I remember uh, when I was, I used to run an indoor grow for a few years and uh, we would run really high. CO2. And if I did like a good six hours in there, I was like, I didn't, couldn't remember who I was practically when I walked out of there. Like I was gone. It reminds me of like uh, <laughs> stories and Miss Nudie Grows is here actually. How you want to introduce yourself? Yay. Hi. Sorry. I'm late guys. I just thought I would pop in. She invited me earlier. So I'm um, sorry again that I'm late. Miss Nudie Grows over on Instagram personal home grower I'm excited to learn about thrips because I have them so um I've had them a few times and I'm here to learn boys yeah awesome I'm really have uh looking forward to talking about it with you we were just talking about like the atmosphere inside and outside of, like growing areas and how that can obviously influence your grow um I said this on the live stream with Aaron but I, I like that metaphor that the the atmosphere, the air is just like a really not very dense ocean. And so things that are sufficiently big or small, mostly small, can kind of have like current effects, kind of similar to like uh, an ocean current, right? And so, and if you're super small and lightweight, you know, you don't need a whole lot to get into the air comparatively, of course. Um, where are you growing? What's your general area? Um, I am Southern Alberta. I think my number, my region is four. Does that help? Definitely. And um, have you been seeing thrips or aphids or any particular pests personally? Uh, yeah, I, well, see, the thing is, is um, I also work in a commercial weed factory. Most people know, but I'll say that. And there's thrips in there. Actually, most of the ones that I've been to have them in the wintertime, in the summertime. And so I think I brought them from there into my own home grow because I found thrips on my, on, in my veg tent 
uh, last week. This is also the time for thrips too. So don't feel too bad. Yeah, I, I know it's not the worst thing in the world. And uh, I have not seen any of them outside. Like I've done, been doing gardening for the last two days. It's May long weekend here in Canada. So we, this is when we plant our gardens <laughs> and uh, I've seen aphids and I've seen um fungus gnats but i haven't seen any thrips yet outdoors yeah oh, okay now is it true matthew i've recently heard and it was just from a person so i want to hear it from you i'll put more weight into it but i've heard that thrips can actually what's it called ova deposit whatever they call it they can lay eggs in the leaves themselves so yeah. for example a spray is not going to help you in that case is that true can they do That's that true so the spray is only going to take out the adults and then you still got to worry about all the eggs. So it, some depends trips, on, yeah. it depends on what spray you're talking about, I think, because some sprays are, are uh, translaminar and will go into the leaf tissue. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. Like that. That's true. And there's also some, I remember reading or hearing from uh, somebody who studied predatory mites, specifically like Swirsky, I think. But mm, Swirsky. They, um, uh, the predatory mites can sense where the eggs are when they're developing. I guess there's some sort of like chemical signature that some of them can home in on. And that's kind of an interesting thing. Are the thrips the one that uh, hatch babies that are pregnant already? Or is that- uh, Aphids. That would be aphids, oh, okay. they're born. <laughs> yeah, they're born. Well, that's and they, that's yeah. crazy, dude, that's crazy. Yeah, isn't it? And um, yeah, they're born pregnant and they live birth and yes. they're clones. They're nasty. Thrips, though, there are some thrips that do asexually reproduce. Um, there are some species that like have both populations, kind of. And sometimes this is because, um, like in the case of onion thrips, thrips tabasi, the female only population so it reproduce it, so they make daughters and they make females because a lot of um well i won't get into that the reason for that but basically um there's a bacteria called wolbachia and it infects a lot of these species they infect a lot of different insects and arthropods and for some of them when they do so they usually do affect the reproductive nature of the insect and it's kind of fascinating to consider that this bacteria is the reason why they have this sort of female um, reproductive strategy, this parthenogenesis, but there's populations that don't. So what happens is the sexual populations, right? Um, I said this in the live stream, but I'll say it here. There's a big cost to sex and that's that it takes two to tango. And that can be a big problem when you don't have the other one. Um, asexual reproduction is way more efficient but obviously the advantage is like we were taught in school, like you get the combination of genes and that can lead to uh, benef beneficial um, effects and mutations and, and other sorts of things related to that. So when they get all these advantageous uh, traits, what do they do? Well, when they eventually meet up with an asexual uh, population, um, sometimes they have some, some sexual interaction and you will have now females reproducing males and females for a short period of time and then go back to females that have all these traits that uh, the sexual population instilled in them. So like resistances, uh, environmental adaptations, that kind of a thing. So it's like a printer machine 
um, you know, you just have to, to feed the right genes in. And that has been a thing that has happened in other agricultural crops. I'm curious to see if this will happen in cannabis. I feel like it won't somewhat because we will, I mean, there's, there's a big push towards um, sort of, like you were saying earlier, Dr. MJ, uh, sort of biodynamic or sort of ecologically um, inspired approaches. Yeah. Yeah. I was just caught up, Matt, in thinking about selfish gene theory when you were talking about that. Is that the the line in terms of when you're talking about the cost of sexual reproduction? Is that what you're thinking about? I do. You know, I love that you brought that up. I like to think about things with regards to that, too. It seems like, yes, it is sort of like a genetic right. sort of gene as the fundamental unit perspective. Well, right. From selfish gene theory perspective, the cost of sexual reproduction is dilution of 50%. Right. Yeah. And with insects, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of insects, aphids are an example thrips, some thrips are an example of this. Um, and also like, I'm sure you're very much aware, like, uh, superorganisms, supraorganisms, um, bees and wasps and ants that are social, which, you know, a lot of bees and wasps aren't, social most of them are solitary but people are only familiar with like honeybees or or hornets or things like this and um the oh but the reason i bring it up is because for those who don't know um all the workers are like sisters so like you're saying with the selfish gene like um there can be some tolerances because of their genetic relatedness um yeah. Well, well, yeah, the way I like to think about that is we tend to think about evolution and other things from the perspective of the organism. And we think that the, it's like w what makes the organism fit. Um, I'm not really a huge fan of the term fitness in that way. But when we think about evolution, we're thinking about sort of the organism fitness. But the selfish gene theory argues that the, the organism is basically just the vehicle that the, the the replicating pieces. So you separate the vehicles from the replicators and the replicators are the genes themselves. And the, the vehicle is the body that the gene builds to sort of pass on itself, right? So these physical organisms that we have are simply vehicles for the genes to continue to be copied and continue to, to make sort of reproduce themselves. Um, and so from the perspective of the gene, the a lot of you know evolution looks really different and sexual reproduction is one of the things that's really sort of difficult almost to imagine how the costs outweigh the benefit or how the benefits outweigh the costs in some of these cases so it's easy to understand sort of the benefits of asexual reproduction because all of the genes are passed along absolutely i love how you put that um you know i had this sort of i'm probably not the first person to say this but it's kind of like how for example a caterpillar um, turns into a butterfly. And so you could, and the caterpillars aren't sexually mature. So in a way, uh, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly is like a plant that shoots up reproductive tissue. It's the same organism, but they're like two different aspects. And one of them is related to like, if in a way the moth is the fruit of a bug, of a caterpillar. Kind of. Right. Yeah. I like, I like that kind of metaphorical thought with well it's not just metaphorical but you know i like that ecological train matthew i got a question off topic of sort of it seems like humans are uh don't uh have intercourse to reproduce anymore it's more for pleasure do bugs have pleasure at all when they uh 
have uh, relations? Do you know? There's yes. Yeah, so um, there's a report. Uh, I could send it to you where there, I always think about this when people ask a question similar to this, and that's that, yes, um, fruit flies, for example, because they're a model organism that we use. Uh, there was a report, there's a research experiment where these uh, people were able to um, make a, what's the word I'm looking for? They were able to condition the fly to, um, uh, to ejaculate when exposed to red coloration. Um, <laughs> so red light and yeah, and it worked out great. <laughs> brings a whole new meaning to the red light district. Holy shit. I know. Right. So, you know, you can, you can do that. Another question I've often asked is, are do bugs feel pain? And um, the answer I have to give, I think even, and this is sort of philosophical is, not in the way that humans mean the word pain, I guess. And that's a little bit of a no non-answer, but I don't think that arthropods in general have a emotional pain like right. we do with pain. Does that make if, sense? And even, and I mean, even physical, the emotional response to physical pain too, not just right. like, yeah. If there's a bug with a, a a broken leg, you see it's injured. Should we take it out of its misery or should we let it be? Oh, I mean, that's a question for you and and anything else that you uh, let influence your actions. Oh, but is it in pain? Do I want to take it out of its misery? I think it's a mechanical thing. Uh, and that's probably very sort of, I don't know what, maybe that's a harsh way to put it. I don't see, know. I think it's like the... <laughs> It's like touch a hot iron and your hand immediately draws away because of a mechanical process. That signal reaches your spinal cord and it fires back and says to pull back. It takes another like two seconds before you feel the heat and feel like the, the you know, the problem on your fingers, but your hands are already away from the iron by the time you, you really start doing that interpretative process. So do you think, Matt, that it's sort of like the initial reaction is what the bugs are feeling, sort of just a, a unprocessed response to a stimulus as opposed to sort of an a processed interpretation of pain? Yes, like uh, no, like no succession, right? Definitely. They have a lot of um, a lot of insects have sort of a no succession response, which is like a pain response, like you're saying. But I think that's kind of Man, you put things beautifully. Yes, it is like the the uh, lizard brain part, not the forebrain part, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it's just that initial pulling away. It's that sort of, before you even know what's going on, your body's responding to things. Definitely. Well, like, uh, I've seen bugs that will like chop off their arm if it gets stuck or, or damaged or injured. And they're just like, to them, it's not an emotional thing. They're like, well, this is going to hinder me. So I'm going to cut it off and keep going about my day. And like humans, even in the worst circumstances, like, 127 hours or whatever the guy gets his arm right rock um that survival instinct when it gets to the very very primal uh, i had know. a raccoon when i was a kid go through my uh my parents stash of dog food outside and it got caught and ended up chewing its own arm off so we opened the thing and there's a raccoon's arm inside the dog food container it's a raccoon without an arm somewhere in the wild that's, yeah it's crazy wow. Wow, I'm not going to step on another bug now when I see the broken leg. <laughs> I don't know if that was the takeaway. <laughs> I, will say, I, I will say this, that um, uh, I kind of feel like uh, 
um oh man i was gonna say something more profound than oh and um somebody say something else i'll think about it i was gonna ask um tal weren't you one of the ones that that said that you'd eaten bugs before and now you don't even want to hurt them I don't. I don't remember if I. Uh, said oh, maybe it wasn't you then. I know I. I but it I, have been me. I don't really want to be known as that guy though. But yeah, I think <laughs> that I probably. Uh, I I've eaten ants before, but uh, they taste like nothing. Yeah, I've eaten Doc, crickets before. Chavalines primarily. And that's sort of like a when in Rome thing, right? You were down in a place where that was part of the culture. You knew yeah, it was a clean, yeah, healthy I, source, and I think a lot of people exactly. in that circumstance would be more understanding and open to it. But um. I think when you just get labeled as the guy who eats bugs, it comes off, off as a little bit different to some people. But. You know, I yeah, that's, my situation I was I was a bachelor. I wasn't very uh, wealthy, and I poured me a bowl of cereal that was Frosted Flakes, if I remember right. And I took about, you know, put my milk in, took about four or five bites, and looked down and seen probably 30 ants floating in my cereal. I said, well, they got into my cereal and I just ate it anyway. And they didn't taste like anything. It tasted like cereal. It was fine. I just said, screw it, extra protein. Oh, and that happened to me once with ants that tasted really funky, though. And I was like, what is this funky taste? And then I realized that there was a bunch of ants in it. Yeah, some ants have a flavor to them. These are the um, little tiny like sugar a, ants. I call them sugar ants, the little small ones. Yeah, they were little tiny sh- ants, too. But we, even when you crushed them, they had a... a a smell maybe matt knows what kind of ants that is but they're here in southern california that was yeah, just definitely like- there's some i think they're called odorous house house ants i think that's a common name but um uh yeah and like, oh, you know, like for, formic acid so formis formicity is the family of ants so formic acid related to form it's very acerbic bitter um uh you know there are other compounds that can be involved in that sort of d- not pleasurable experience <clears throat> no i ate it in my cereal it took me like a few bites i thought the milk was bad at first or something and i was looking at the milk and then finally i found the ants and then we'd like step on them and you'd get just the whiff of that and it would like make me queasy after that because like the smell was associated with eating them what up hota what's going on everybody yeah up, hota Good yeah, man. Uh, introduce yourself. We're talking about IPM. Welcome, Hoda. <clears throat> so this is Hota Herb at Hota Herb on Instagram. Uh, happy to be here, guys. Happy Sunday, everybody. Happy Sunday, and I love IPM. It's a, it's a fun topic. Fumido, uh, Fumidora and the flavors um, in the comments mentioned that he said ants. Um, and recognize themselves in the mirror. I think I've seen things re- related to that. Uh, I'll do you one better. Um, certain social wasps, paper wasps, polistes, um, they seem to be able to recognize like f- different faces, different uh, uh, sp- uh, faces of their own nest, their nestmates. And um, that's kind of interesting to consider. Like, uh, what what would have been the necessary things to happen for you know bug people to have happened and what's fundamentally different from a mammal brain and a bug brain? Or right, I hate to interrupt, brain. but how did they figure out that they could recognize their their uh, buddies? Was it a blind lineup, a photo lineup? You know, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was this one, officer. <laughs> Uh, you know, I would have to go back and actually uh, preview it, but I'd be happy to do that. I have it on my um, on my computer. Uh, What's the right, ant one? Don't get crazy. Think... I was just... Sorry. Really. 
Go ahead. I it seems really have, hard. It would it would probably come up in the Google. I, I think they probably did something kind of like what MJ Coco was saying. Like, yeah, they probably exposed them to like some sort of image of of them and looked for a certain response or something. So I mean, yeah, it would be interesting. I mean, I imagine that they could design an experiment for that, but it would be interesting to see what the experimental design was. But yeah, bumblebees apparently can do math abs or abstract concepts, or there's certain interesting like animal intelligence, quote unquote, you know, used loosely and very specifically at the same time um, experiments. You can see it in a lot of the psychology experiments, like the one with the ant. I think that Fumi was uh, referencing. They like put a drop of paint on an ant's head and have it stand in front of a mirror, and then sort of like you can recognize that it sees that it has a drop of paint on its head, and then realizes, oh, that's not another ant. That's me in the mirror, and it stops like messing with itself. Where there's certain animals that won't be able to recognize things like that. Fun fact: since we were on the topic before, um, a lot of uh, solitary wasps, when they when the males mate with the females. Um, they use their antenna. Some of them have antennae that have like pads at the end and they um, put them in front of the eyes uh, of, the, of the female. And that's sort of an interesting thing because um, bees, a lot of bees won't fly if it's dark. So it's an interesting like behavioral response that got co-opted to like a sort of a, a mating selection. Kind I'll of say thing. this, I have, a, I have a week and a half old baby and I hold her in front of the mirror like for an hour a day and she has no idea what she's looking at. She's just like, I don't, this is, looks like every part, other part of the room. So he's not going to know for a little while. There's like concrete yeah. stages of operation. If you look into like Erickson's uh, stages of development, they'll give you like yeah. a month or yeah. when so, she'll start to realize, you know, eventually she will, but you know, some organisms just don't. It's one of those weird things, though, like with our conscience, like you can see that she clearly doesn't get that quite yet. And it's nothing wrong with her. It's just part of being a human. You don't get that until later in life. Your brain it hasn't developed the ability to understand it quite yet. Yep. I should say all other things being perfectly normal for her. So. Right. I guess that's a good that's a good contextual point, right? Yeah. The other thing is the uh, other animal behavior study that was referenced is like, how could they see if one recognized their buddy? Well, they do things like see how animals interact with each other when they know each other versus when they don't know another one. So they could record the behavior when it's a known animal that it's approaching versus one that's unknown. And then when they expose it to something even years later, they can see they're like, oh, I, I remember that either by its look or its smell or something else. It's also really important to note this, especially for the social insects, your bees, your wasps, your ants, um, that like cuticular hydrocarbons so like little like compounds that are volatizing on the cuticle on the on the on the on the exoskeleton of like ants and things super important um so like you'd have to control for that probably you probably have to like make it so that they have no scent or the same scent or something like that otherwise you know they'll recognize it as hostile potentially um in fact that's how you get mega colonies that are across you know, the coast of the United States, because some, uh, so for um, Lazius niger, the, the brown, the black ant that everyone's very familiar with, or often have seen, um, we were just talking about the selfish gene theory. This is a, this is an interesting point, though, to make is that um, because they're a lot more accepting of uh, hydrocarbon 
compounds that are pretty similar but not exact, uh, the colonies won't fight. They'll either ignore each other or they'll work together. And so even though the individual mm -hmm. colonies are not as genetically related, because they share this, like, I guess, is it a green beard thing? Is it a green beard thing, Dr. MJ? I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> is it like a, I mean, I guess it's like mm -hmm. a trait that um, it's pro is a proxy for um, relatedness, I think. Yeah, relatedness can be misinterpreted. So there's a number of sort of, we see this in humans too. Uh, there's a big theory that, um, you know, we practice kin selection, basically, that we care more about people that we're related to than people that we're not related to. But rather than actually determining degrees of relation, we make those judgments based on other characteristics, um, how well we know people, how much time we spent with them and all of that. So that ends up redirecting a lot of that kin behavior towards non-kin if that and I think that's an analogous situation what's going on with the bees I like that and I agree um, and the same thing actually happens with plants too with kin selection and a lot of people I think have this uh, um, benign idea about plants plants are hardcore um, they definitely compete with each other um, only it's a little bit it just looks more passive to us and slowed down but like they'll like outgrow and then um, overgrow uh, other plants and totally kill them. And that's, I mean, if that's not alpha dominance, then what is? I think one of my plants got jealous of the way I was treating other plants better once. Uh -oh. like this one's getting all the attention this one's getting all the attention we're gonna I'll show to... you i'll show you i'll show you yeah so... they compete for the growers attention hmm. hmm right i'm gonna throw more color i'm gonna throw more trichome there you go oh, there, if, there's some if selection only pressure them, if only you could get that type of competition to happen I know, right? I guess you do, though, in a way. That's what our artificial selection kind of is, right? Like, Yeah, it's just intergenerational. It's not developmental. <laughs> there yeah, that's what we're selecting strain. Um, I'm already sufficiently high from not talking a lot. I just wanted to say, what do you guys think? Well, first of all, Zentanol, I got to ask you, um, or Matthew, Thrips, what is the best avenue of attack for Thrips? Is it Bavaria Bassiana, as far as something that you're going to spray in your leaves and if you want to stay organic and as safe as possible would you say about barbaria bassiana as far as a spray is probably the best thing or no in my experience i think so for the things that i've been able to use um i know a lot of people th swear by like pyrethrin and even like uh spinosins and like in spinosid and um, other sorts of things, but they're not necessarily allowed um, for various reasons. Uh, for me, I, I found Bouveria Bastion to be useful, but it, it's like, it can be kind of expensive. And also um, it works a lot better when you have a little bit higher humidity and also when the populations are more dense. I suppose that's more of a factor for the fact that it's a spray and it's like a fungus and that sort of a thing. And it's important to keep those considerations. But um, I think that alone, it's it's not always effective. 
And if you're in a situation where you have space that's sort of more controllable, then it's much more effective. And then you'd go in with predators behind that, maybe the pirate bug, Osiris or Arias or whatever it was. I got it written up here somewhere. Aureus? Aureus, Insidious. I love Insidious. Insidiosis. Insidiosis. Oh, I didn't see the O. Insidiosis. Yeah, Yeah, I definitely agree. Yes. Those will bite you, by the way. The larger varieties will bite the hell out of you. They they hurt. Yeah. Crips can bite, too, by the way. So Speaking of biting... Does the sugar ant that's like in Southern California, do those bite or am I just like hallucinating? Because I feel like sometimes when they're in my house, they're like crawling on me. I've never had it. I've never experienced it that I can recall myself for me. Um, But I think there are people who have said that they have been that I know personally. But it's like, I mean, I don't, you know, I've never had it happen to me. Maybe they just know not to mess with me. I don't know. But I grew up in Florida. South Florida is really wet and, you know. There fire was we had sugar ants and fire ants all over the place. And yeah, the, the fire ants, they burned, but They're the awful. sugar ants, they never, and I could, I swear I like had them crawl on me for fun. I'm embarrassed to say, but it didn't bite you. See, I grew up with the uh, fire ants in Ohio too. So I'm familiar with those. Those are nasty fuckers. But in San Diego, uh, sometimes they'll like crawl around food, but occasionally they'll go like for the toilet and I'll be like going to the bathroom late at night and like sit down and I feel like because I'm like sitting on them, maybe they're like, oh, get the fuck off of me. And I like, feel like a fire sting. ants. Fire ants definitely have venom and um, a couple of different like it's a cocktail. Um, There's some really funny videos of people like intentionally subjecting themselves to being like stung or bit by like some of the most intense insects and things. So if you're into that kind of thing, it's on YouTube and uh, And it's some tender spots too. What was that? I said also getting bit in some tender spots too. So um, just to add on to uh, the, for the Aureus, you probably want to like, that's, there's like three things you need to do if you're going to go biologicals in my opinion. Aureus rove beetle for the soil because they're going to yep. be the the you know the larva they fall to the to, I, Matt help me out here the larva fall to the ground and live in the know. soil and yeah they develop and they come up right and that's why and, you want like the stradiolalap uh, yes. like glaspis mites rove beetles and absolutely the aureus because the aureus are just indeterminate killers they'll just run around and stab shit not even to eat it they'll just kill things for fun uh they're great um but i also you know the one thing that you know matt and i talked about last time was making sure you get a a banker plant of some kind if you're going to use uh aureus or hypoaspis mites or something along those lines so that those those bugs will stay around longer and help you protect your plant and then they can live off the pollen uh in between so something like an ornamental pepper plant uh, he was mentioning some papers uh, on burning ember. I've also heard pe- purple flash peppers, but pretty much any of the ornamental peppers, the pollens um, can, you know, they can live off the pollens when they're not attacking like a thrip or something like that. Uh, there's, there's a, a, there's a yeah. shortcut for that also, I should mention. Um, BioBest, I just started trying out these uh, Nutri cards. They're supposed to feed predator bugs. Basically, it's like a replaceable banker system. You can kind of like, keep applying these cards to your plants. You want to 
put them at the top end of your canopy, I found out, because they attract ants, because they just tend to attract predators. <laughs> and, and ants bring aphids, as most yeah. of you probably know. Um, but uh, so, yeah, the neutral cards work really well to keep the, the aureus around if you don't feel like spending a bunch of time on a banker system. Right. It's true, you know. Yeah. Uh, oh. oh, I just wanted to point out that, like, a lot of a lot of insects eat uh, pollen. Um, purple, what is it? What's his name? Purple, purple flash. Purple oh, flash. No, yeah. no, no. Um, purple yeah. thumb OG. OG in the in the, in the comment. Oh. Purple thumb OG asks, uh, "What are the good companion plants for green lace wings?" Um, that's kind of related to what we're talking about here, because um, like the adults, they they eat pollen or nectar. Um, lace wings, in particular, are pretty primitive as far as insects go. Um, the green lace wing is more modern, but the group I'm talking about. And um, the larvae eat aphids, um, and for and thrips eat pollen. A lot of thrips eat pollen, at least. Um, a lot of predatory mites eat pollen. Uh, it's a very access. It's a very accessible, easy protein source. And so uh, those cards will. Those cards can be a double-edged sword. Really, any pollen application can be a double-edged sword. But if you're already using, you know, biocontrol agents, and you're establishing them um, primarily, then you really shouldn't have much of a problem, in, in my opinion, anyways. Well, Swirsky seems like a great generalist, and it seems to work really well. And uh, Brandon showed that here in San Diego, and I'm not sure if he's done it quite yet in Oklahoma, but I saw it in his garden, and it was kicking ass. It, it's like a perfectly like you describe it. It's a little barracks almost of uh, your good guys just waiting for any bad stuff to roll around. Oh, and by the way, the the pet, the sorry the um, the cultivar of the ornamental pepper is exploding ember. Exploding uh, ember. Sorry, not burning ember. No, exploding that's okay. Got it. <laughs> that, no, it's totally cool. I just want in case I always you know yeah. I want to make sure if they Google it so they're getting the right one. But yeah, exploding ember was one yep. of them. But you're probably fine with other ones too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the, pur yeah. the purple flash peppers were the ones that were recommended to me from the uh, beneficial insectary folks. And um, I also saw in that paper you uh, pointed me towards, there was a poinsettia pepper as well. So it seems like a lot of the different ornamental peppers are probably pretty good choices. You know, I had good luck uh, with the green lacewing, getting them to stick around by planting a bunch of marigold, um, different varieties. Like I seeded my bed with, um, with marigold and I gold with the lacewing adults and i managed to get a research population a couple of times yeah those are good companion plants marigolds and uh, calendula which is another form of marigold they're awesome companion plants to plant with your uh, peppers and tomatoes and things as well uh, they're definitely good ipm type plants they're annuals so you got to keep chucking them in every year but uh, definitely a good plan to use you can save the seeds I from your them. marigolds and then plant them the next year i do that every year around my whole garden bed and it works their seeds are so cool looking too you wouldn't yeah. expect them. if you haven't seen them before you'd be surprised when you see a marigold seed you get Spartan, so many you of saying, them too sorry Nudie. Spartan, weren't you saying that uh somebody maybe it's you plants like a basically a row of that around like the outside of the garden as like a wall to like block stuff from coming in yeah, that's, you must have been listening to an old episode. About, we were that's uh, growing up uh, as when I was a kid, when I was a young Spartan. <laughs> uh, 
that's what we did every year. We had a huge garden and every year the whole garden was surrounded by marigolds. We'd plant just a whole, we'd do the whole border around the entire garden with marigolds. Same, that's how I learned it. I'm and so they curious. put these the healthy beneficial nematodes into the soil too and then they attack the soil stuff. Does anyone here on the panel uh, make a concerted effort to plant like uh, plants that are native to your like location in specific for beneficials? No, I don't care about that. Because is anything really native anymore? Really? Maybe I have and I did it like incidentally. I don't know. I guess if it works in my climate, uh, if it grows like within whatever zone I'm in, healthy, and uh, it's not like a huge uh, issue for like being a problem for the local region. Like, yeah, I even thought about that earlier when you're talking about bringing in, I think you said aureus from Canada was not as effective as uh, aureus in your local region. Yep. And I was just thinking like, is there even like legality issues with some of this stuff, like importing those things? Um, I know that other certain insects are heavily monitored and regulated and what's allowed to be brought in. But if it's a beneficial, it would make sense that they wouldn't be too worried about it. Definitely on both cases. Um, there are certainly plants that you can't uh, plant in other places because of that reason. And some places are way more strict than others. Um, some places can enforce it way better than others. And you, you do run into a problem potentially with all, even with, with biocontrol agents. I know, um, think it's uh you know i'm gonna get the name wrong but there's some bumblebee species that um are popular in europe for pollinating but they cannot use them in north america because um they will outcompete the natives or there's a potential for a colonizing event and as we know that can be a problem for uh native species in north america sure glad there's no one micromanaging humans like that yeah, even something like comfrey, though, comfrey is something that you're not really supposed to put down unless you already have it. It's an invasive type of a plant, even though it's an awesome bioaccumulator, comfrey is definitely banned in some places. So there's plants and insects that you can't necessarily use, even though they can be extremely beneficial, especially if you're making your own ferments and things like that. Uh, but in there's the plenty of plants. Yeah, like in the case of comfrey, though, they do make, I can't remember, I wish I could remember, there's a variety they make that's sterile. You can usually yeah. do that in most places. It just depends. I mean, there's there's one there's one uh, type of comfrey that, that puts down like a 10-foot tapper. Um, you know, Ooh. you're never getting that puppy out of there. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and, you know, if you chop up that plant and its roots, as long as, what was it, an eighth of a, I'll say an inch, but I think it was centimeter, as long as it had a little bit of a root, that root will become a new plant. And then every one yep. that you chopped up all the way up will become. So that's why they usually say, like you're saying, put it in a pot or something like that, because otherwise it's going to go all over the place. But then you lose the whole advantage of the whole plant. The advantage of that plant is, is that it sends its roots down. To, yeah, it pulls up all those minerals that a lot of the other plants right. don't go down and get. Yep. So and sometimes aren't those used for like breaking up really uh, hard soils or stuff that you can't like other stuff otherwise wouldn't be able to root down into. So they'll like throw that in there, let it break up things deep down and then plant stuff that would have a harder time growing there. It'll help. It'll help. It'll help because when the root, when the root goes, when you pull it up, um, water will go where that root was. But uh, to do what you're saying, they usually go for like daikon radish or something. It sends a big fatter root. You know what I mean? That's what I was thinking of actually. Yeah. 
there's I different applications. I've seen them do it with corn as well. So you can start you can start corn young, and then you basically just chop it and drop it as part of a uh, Korean natural farming field prep. Um, you only let it go for like four or five weeks, and then you just chop it and drop it and kind of grind it into the soil. But yeah, the roots and the aggregates that get formed in the soil help with some of your water and, and some of your retention and help start to break up some of that hard packed soil when you have compaction. Uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, I've actually done that in my raised beds when I started them. The first crop down the middle, I planted daikon radish. And uh, I'm going to maybe harvest one or two of them to eat, but the rest I'm just going to leave. I'm going to let, I'll, I'll cut them and I'll just let them rot. So that way uh, I'm bringing all kinds of organic material way deep into my soil too. So it's just, it's just another thing that you can do to play with. Is there any IPM considerations that need to be made when you're doing these types of things like the corn chop and drop or the daikon radish before planting something new in there that, um, should be considered for anybody who's listening and considering these strategies? Yeah, the chop and drop strategy with the corn is part of usually, you're usually doing that with a IMO treatment. Um, so indigenous microorganisms doing an IMO three or an IM, a liquid IMO treatment. Um, and there's some other pieces in there. So you're also introducing some OHN, uh, oriental herbal nutrient, which is an anti-pathogenic. Um, it's not necessarily focused on an IPM uh, strategy specifically. It's more about starting to break up the compaction of the soil and start bringing some natural biology and fungal bodies back into the soil that will also aid in helping break those things up and start creating aggregates and channels for moisture and things like that. So, I think that that's sort of like, um, I, I like the, the mechanical abiotic considerations too. And I think that that's like where those two kind of meet, especially with microbes. Cause like I was saying about with insects and flight being kind of like sailing in the ocean, but like different. Um, so too are microbes even smaller and the dynamics of how they get into the soil and get out of the soil and get into the plant is heavily influenced by um, the soil mechanics, which I'm not a huge expert in myself, but it's important to consider exodus of roots and you know the bulk composition of microbiota in general and that's the thing is that's we're talking what you're talking about too is is now we're talking cutting edge you know everybody wants to have this debate over you know organic versus synthetic and then each one there's so many divisions in each one it's like synthetic then you can break it down by you know deep water culture you could do you know aeroponics or on the organic side you have people doing no-till or you'll have people within the organic side arguing oh you're not organic enough or you're not doing this or, you're not doing that it's you're organic like, but you're not regenerative so yeah. you're not in doing my, it right man. yeah in my <laughs> yeah. eyes what, in my eyes if you're having fun and you're being successful you're doing it right you know what I mean? yeah as long I as you're not it. poisoning people too on top of that poisoning yourself or other people you know please don't do that but I mean, there's a correct way to grow in any of those ways that I mentioned, and then all the other ways too. There, and and so I'm not gonna sit here and say one's better than the other. It's what it is. Is I would I would really really encourage people to try them all. Now I'm not saying to try grown. You know, don't take a 12 lighter and try to do it every different way. I'm saying if you have two lights, or if you have say you have two flower rooms and you can do two different, do your main style, what you've been doing. Don't change anything, get an extra light and then try another style on that extra light. That way you're not losing anything. If you, 
lose everything on that grow, but you might learn, Oh, I tried this man. I've, I've grown so many different ways. It's ridiculous, but it's funny because I can tell the, the, that it, in either way, like if I go to work and I'm growing hydroponically in cocoa or I'm at home and I'm growing in my home garden uh, outside, or I'm trying to do an indoor grow at home as a personal grow in all of those cases, I'm taking things from each one of those and I'm using them in each one of those. So it just makes you a better all around gardener. Now I'm not saying you have to go and do those constantly. I'm just saying, try them before you just pick one and forever and stuck, stuck to it. If you start struggling with something and it's starting to become a burden, it's time to start changing things. It's just, just what I wanted to throw out there. I just love seeing people grow. So, you know, it goes in ebbs and flows, but in the social media scene, it's, it's usually all positive, but sometimes I start seeing people start just fighting over things that don't matter. In my opinion, it's like, who cares? Uh, the Why? litmus test thing is sort of, um, I think even I can be a little bit guilty of that because I think I can get a little bit zealous about what the ramifications are, you know, um, the cascading things that could happen because we do things one way and not another but at the same time i have to agree i empathize greatly with that is that you know you can't let the what's the phrase you can't let the good be the enemy of the great or is it the opposite of that yeah that's the opposite don't let the the perfect be the enemy of the good enough yeah exactly and so you know i i try to i feel like i'm pretty nice about things in general but there are some things where i recognize that if we don't change, then like <laughs> things might get really bad. Um, but, you know, like you say, there's different scales of bad and some of it's very acute and some of it's much less acute, I guess. Hey, to back up a sec, uh, does anyone, speaking of invasive uh, species, is, is all the bacteria we use in gardening, is it universal or is like, some microbe they found in China delivered to Canada gonna take over and do weird stuff. Does anybody know? If it if it hasn't already happened, right? So it's a good, it's a super good question. Um, Canada's I think certainly that... worried about it. <laughs> Sorry. Well, um, I mean, the the way that I look at it is that like broad spectrum. When I think about things globally. Um, there are a lot of microbes that seem to be sort of cosmopolitan and they seem to have like distributed themselves or at least genera and families that have been, that are kind of pan global. But, you know, we all know that a lot of microbes, different populations can be radically different, uh, you know, for various contextual reasons. So it's sort of hard to really say. And I think that as agriculture becomes a lot more, um, bioregenerative I think that will be a question that people have to answer if they haven't already sort of considered like what's the ecological ramification of introducing like with earthworms you know we mentioned this in the past um, mm-hmm. there are earthworms that have uh, you know sort of uh, escaped captivity or at least their agricultural roles or uses and um, kind of destroyed certain biomes and now those populations of organisms just can't survive there and i mean what if that happened to cannabis's like original area like like let's be let's not be let's not like mince words here cannabis is from eurasia the eurasian continent and a lot of the ancestral places for cannabis are now in china 
and I don't know about you, but it might be that certain areas are, for various reasons, because of development and other sorts of things, inaccessible and maybe have perished microbes or um, predators and parasites and pathogens and that kind of a thing. See, my opinion is like, I don't believe what we have in the United States right now is anything like what was there then that's already gone in my opinion so i don't cry over spilled milk this if there's not anything i can do about it directly right now then i don't have the time in my day to worry about that you know what i'm saying so what we're growing here now i don't think would be like put in the same if you put that what we're growing now if we put that in the same environment of original cannabis sativa whatever it was um the cannabis sativa no doubt would have destroyed what we have would have killed it because it's already adapted to the environment that it's in and it's going to do better. And it's going to, so what we have now is anything like that is what I'm saying already we've already, we're already there. It's not like that's something that we, we can get back maybe with breeding or with uh, CRISPR techniques or anything like that. We can well, build something like that, but it's not like a commercial strain. So it's not going to be popular in that way. And it's not going to be a strain that's uh well, there might be like a hobbyist might like it, but it's going to probably grow. I mean, do we know exactly how the plant even grew? Was it one of the ones that just lays on the ground like a bush or was it, I mean, do we even have a clue of what that, the earliest cannabis sativa example that we've had? Well, I'll say that um, I think I'm curious what you have to say, uh, Dr. Coco, but just answer that last question. As far as I understand it, we know that uh, hops and cannabis diverged from a common ancestor 19 and a half million years ago based on molecular clock estimations of genes. So it's an estimation. Uh, and also with that sort of combined with some fossil evidence. But the first cannabaceae was Athenantha, and that was like 70 million years ago. So you're right that a lot of things have probably been destroyed and evolved you know, since then as well. Um, and, you know, ancestral things like they might have traits that are that we that we might want to or they might have genes rather that confer traits like resistances and things that we might want to interbreed with our cannabis. Now, that's one reason people would want to. Another might be microbes in the soil that we would like, you know, ind indigenous microorganisms. Right. That kind of a thing, too. Yeah. But see, you, as, as somebody with a, a sign, it seems like you have a, a very large science background you th i would think that you would be more darwinistic in, in the fact that well whatever's here now has evolved because it was you know in whatever way uh better <laughs> one way or not maybe it's just better lucky you know but it was better in one way or another and that's why it's still here it's kind of the survival of the fittest why would you want to i can understand the loss of something that we don't have anymore because as humans we innately want to collect things but um you know Genetic diversity is valuable. So things that we do I agree that, that diversity cost is us genetic diversity are necessarily sort of negative consequences. And you're right. We've done a lot of damage, humans, by moving around species that became invasive and outcompeted native populations and, and caused a, a tremendous decline in biodiversity in those ecosystems. Um, and I'm not saying there may be, you know, genetic resources in, in that diversity that's lost. So 
um, being careful about not releasing new invasive species. I, I really think that we shouldn't just be cavalier with the attitude of thinking like, well, you know, the cat's already out of the bag. Um, yeah, we've already done a lot of damage in terms of uh, natural ecosystems. That doesn't sort of mean, well, like, okay, all holds are, you know, unbarred now and we're going to go for it. Um, I, I think that we I don't think I was suggesting to that. be careful and to defend <laughs> no. our, sort of, our local ecosystems and protect the, the native genetic diversity that exists in, in every ecosystem. It's a yeah, good I don't, question. I, don't, I mean, I, we were discussing at the time a, a Canadian pirate bug as opposed to a native pirate bug. I don't think I was ex exactly saying no, this was the same, same exact bug almost. It's just from different areas. Well, so I will but even the question I've about... Heard, I've heard... So if you go... There's issues even with ladybugs. Okay, so I've, I've heard... I, I don't know. I was watching something or reading something a week or two ago where they were talking about how uh, ladybugs... We have a lot of problem with ladybugs in the United States because... Actually, we've been using ladybugs from different areas of the country, and those ladybugs may be resistant to certain insects and mites and things within their environment, uh, say the Pacific Northwest. But when you bring them into, say, Florida, for instance, they don't necessarily have their, it's not the same environment. And because it's a different environment, they don't necessarily do as well, but they also can introduce and bring those other mites and things with them that aren't native to that area and then affect that native population. So I think it's really important that we do pay attention and be conscious. And, and you know, I think that's one of the, one of the things that is, is one of the uh, pillars of the regenerative movement is, is really trying to source things locally and be more closed loop and try to use your local plants. Um, you know, I'm making FPJs out of dock and of making FPJs out of mug, you know, local mugworts and, and different things like that, uh, trying to find those local plants that are healthy and successful, and then collecting those to use in my ferments to bring those microorganisms as well as those minerals and nutrients that are local into my local environment, um, trying to keep those things local. But you definitely have to be careful. Um, you don't want to order um, mantises, because a lot of the mantises you're getting, you're getting them from China. You don't want the Chinese mantis interfering with the North, North American mantis. You know, there are native species of mantises here. You don't have to bring them in from the outside. Um, I, I think we, we definitely have to think about that with all these insects. So, the thing with mantises, they eat each other. So if you ordered a thousand mantis eggs or something, then you're going to end up with like one or two because they're going to end up mm -hmm. eating each other and killing them. Uh, with the mantis? It's like one, it's like one per plant. And, but, and I'm not talking about if you order them, like I've had them naturally, obviously my circumstances are different, but they come here and they occupy about a 10 square foot area and they can occupy a hundred, you know, like maybe 10,000 square feet. They, there can be hundreds of them. So uh, with regards to the question that was directed, so Spartan, what you're saying about, um, I, I agree with you, by the way, you weren't saying necessarily the things that MJ Coco was saying. I don't think he meant to Im Im imply that totally either. Uh, not, not to speak for him or anything. Yeah, no, I wasn't talking about any one specific instance either, just sort of more about the the general principle and, and kind of responding to the, the idea of like the cat's already out of the bag. Uh, I think that we still need to be careful. But yeah, I'm not talking about any specific practice. And with the with the Darwinian thing, I actually I like how you put that. And I, I want to answer my perspective because I think 
it's the reason why I, I talk so much about like like <laughs> where did thrips come from and why do we care that they're related to aphids or whatever when they developed well because when you study the earth's history uh even in a basic way you know that there were a lot of extinction events that were basically like cataclysmic and they had really nothing to do with like you know co-evolution with different organisms in competition no an asteroid hit and wiped them out which is sort of unfair <laughs> <You're cheating>. and, <laughs> and you know without those things happening i mean i have no doubt in my mind that humans wouldn't have developed in the same i mean humans as we know them wouldn't have existed right because mammals had to get smaller things had to bugs that were bigger died when uh you know there wasn't as much food and the oxygen levels changed and all of these little small foundational effects have uh, cascading effects in the future and I mean right now we're in we're in what's considered an ice age but we might not always be and even if we didn't burn fossil fuels that's still kind of a true statement and this is going to sound like I'm defending people who are okay with using them this is not what I'm saying but my point is that paying attention to that kind of a thing it's not really the Darwin it's not the natural selection that I want uh, because humans humans are more like a meteor strike and they're less like you know, Gaia guiding things, <clears throat> if that makes sense. Speaking of fossil fuels, Miss Nudie, I know you're up in Alberta and that's uh, notorious for fossil fuels. And you were talking about how they had some thrip issues. And I was curious how they're approaching it, how they're dealing with it. Because it seems to me like what you're saying is uh, they're probably not having the most effective uh, job no. of treating it. I would love to chat about uh, like reel back into thrips just for my own personal grow. Like, and probably it's the most common thing around here in other, uh, like my friend's personal home grows. But yeah, the commercial grow, they just say that there is a healthy amount or a percentage of thrips that can be in a licensed producer or in a flowering room or in a vegetative room. Um, I'm not sure what that number is. I know it's really, really high. I've also heard things about like um, high stress, uh, almost like... I don't know. Someone said that there, people were doing like stress induced thrips to like create um, uh, more potent weed. More so terpenes. I don't know. More yeah, terpenes. I mean, terpenes I, are I, a defense mechanism. I tried to Google, like, if anyone has articles about that, I'd love to Google it um, or to find them. I tried to find something on it. I couldn't find anything. But in the weed factory, basically, their hands are tied because of Health Canada's um, uh, regulations on IPM and ICM and on pesticides. So um, it's really limited. There's just like a handful, like they can't even use neem oil. Um, and they shouldn't anyway. Okay, good. Like I want to talk about that <laughs> because I use neem oil on my own and it didn't even work. Like, um, yeah. and also the other, when I did find them, like I haven't sprayed anything yet. I, I used neem as a preventative thing. And then um, I found them. And also on the same leaf, when I was looking, I found, cause I had, I had put some Swirskis in my, um, in my tent and I thought I had killed them all like the little packs. And I thought I had accidentally killed them all because I let my RH drop too low for a while. But I literally, I saw one, I saw one. So they're still in there. 
so I'm not sure if I should spray or if I should just hope that there's enough in there that they're going to kill my threat population because it's not big. It just I just noticed it. Um, but yeah, and then in the commercial, they use um, uh, the glue strips and then also they do a spray right before flower, like a sulfur spray, I think. I don't know what they use exactly. Subfoil X maybe. Um, but it says a, it's like as a preventative thing, but like I've gone literally into rooms before um, and there's sticky trap after sticky trap after sticky trap. And, you know, like I can just look at all the leaves and you can see like adults immediately, like, and they're small, but you know what I mean? Like if you're seeing that many adults in a room, it's bad. Right. This, the sticky traps tend to be more effective on things like fungus gnats and larger insects, not so much on thrips. Oh, they're uh, so small. The, the predator bugs tend to stay away from them too. So things like aureus and stratiolalap and things, they'll, they actually stay away from uh, the sticky traps in general. Um, but, you know, you do have problems because you can't use any types of sprays. And mm -hmm. the problem with something like thrips is that um, they, you know, once they lay the eggs, you can't wash the eggs off. You know, they don't, they don't just come off. Um, so you have to use different levels of insects. I also, I've been, I've been battling on and off with, uh, with thrips. I get the North American flower thrips here in Massachusetts here too. And um, I actually brought them home from the farm. Uh, so I was out at the farm where I have my CSA and get my vegetables and things last year. Um, and I, I brought the thrips home from the farm. So they, they yeah. do just nature. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you do need to use some of the insect controls, bio controls. It's very hard. You can't really spray anything once you go into flower. Um, I know uh, some, some things have been getting certified. Like I know Dr. Zymes has gotten uh, certified in some places, but maybe not in Canada. Um, but even things like Azimax have been pulled from the shelves in Oregon. Um, there's, there's a lot of those types of things that you just can't use in any type of a grow. So it is definitely difficult uh, to get, once you have them, to get rid of them. Um, and, and then, you, like I said, I think the best approach is to use multiple levels of insects, like we were talking about earlier. You know, nematodes are gonna be more for the fungus gnat larva. They will definitely eat some of the um, thrip larva after they've fallen in the soil, things like that. Stratiolalap rogue beetles, those are great for the ground and the soil and then the thrips because they're up in your leaves. Um, mm -hmm. You need to get in there with things that fly or the cucumerous, uh, cucumerous uh, things that will crawl around in the, in the phylosphere. Um, those, are, those are all good uh, avenues. And you have to, if you're gonna introduce the insects and this is something I've been trying to figure out and I haven't been able to figure it out myself and it's something I'm trying to, you need to deliver those insects in waves so that you do get that next round of hatchlings and next round of adults as they develop that get missed by the other layers. Um, if you just do one application, you're not gonna solve the problem. You have to do an application, uh, use things like sachets that will do a slow release over a couple of weeks, and then come in again with another onslaught so that you're taking care of that cycle um, and, you know, I'm sure Matt can fill us in. There's a lot of different, you know, each of those different, pre the, those insects, those uh, annoying pests have different life cycles. And so 
you almost have to time your approach to the life cycle of the insect to make sure that it doesn't keep coming back again and again. So um, for someone like myself, though, that's like growing in my bedroom in a tent, like it's like hard. It would, it's hard for me to even think about re releasing things into the tent and it's not really that sealed. <laughs> and yeah. like, Judy, I want to, I want to say they covered this a little, uh, on, it was actually t fucking talking shit with Eagle with, uh, the embracing organics host who I'm blanking on his name right now, but he grows in a two by two tent in his bedroom. Dirt man, Dirt Dirt man, man Dan. Dan. Sorry. Yeah, thank like, you. Shout okay. out to Dirt man Dan. Like I, saying, I, I, they I don't ever leave the spraying. tent. They want to be in that environment where it's nice and warm and the, the light and the plants are. They don't want to come into your carpet and, and die okay. where it's dry and, and not friendly the best. I need to ease yep. into this train though. Like, cause I'm like that half hydro, half organics. Like I am okay with spraying stuff. Like I'm okay with the thrips to live a little bit in there for a bit. They're just in my veg tent right now. I have not found any in my flower tent. All right. So I can, I can finish this real quick. What you got already should be good. Um, like I see uh, my what I would stuff. do what what I would do is I would take take your sachets off your plant are, are are they in is it in like a scrog or is it easily movable the plant all easily movable veg tent it's like 30 little plants in there that I take can your, whip in and out solo cups right, like it's take your easy plant, take your plant out to your up to your bathroom put it in the shower and spray the damn leaves off you're gonna get most of the adults will fall off because they suck at flying just from water just from water, the physical, you're in veg, right? Yeah. 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 Just the physical, just the physical water will push them off the plant and then you'll have them. You're not pushing them off into your bedroom. You're pushing them off into your shower, which mm. you can out afterwards. Okay. Okay. And, so and I can put them all in there and shower yep. them. Yep. Then you can spray whatever you oh, want in that, love. in that tent. Ah, spray okay. whatever you want in that tent when it's empty. Cause anything that's out there, you can, you can nuke it if you have to. I got Dr. Doom. I also want to ask you guys about that. I'm not, I have never used it. It's like the only thing I could find in, yeah, honestly, my, in Canada. Honestly, the only thing I would spray is something with uh, Bavaria Bastiana. I know, but, but can, I think it's Botanigard or something like that is the product. Okay. Maybe Matthew knows. They also sell powder. it through Build-A-Soil and liquid drops. Yeah, but she's in Canada, so I'm not sure what's going to be available to it's her. It's so hard to find stuff out here. Like, honestly, it's just been ridiculous. Without, yeah, like, just the physical, best thing I can get is safers, and I hate safers. What I would do with what you have, which is right now, what you could do is you could just take your sachets off for a second, put them somewhere safe, you know, off to the side. Yeah. Get all your plants out of there. You can have the tent cleaned out real nice, and then you could spray off your plants, bring them back down into the clean tent, put the sachets back on, and you'll be far better let, off just doing that. Let them do their job because your predators, even if you have a few. Yeah, predators will be around. Yeah, your sources will be jumping out. They're there aggressive. Like yeah. I could tell it was one of them. I've seen them before. They're tiny, but you can see them with your eye. And it was going yep. so fast on the leaf, and I I was shocked that it was still alive. Is there anything I can like do to promote their their staying around? Because <laughs> I don't just, have that many sachets left. Yeah, I just threw the them out. So okay. yeah. let's see. I got it written down. It's uh, their range, temperature range is fifty to ninety degrees Fahrenheit. Fifty. Fifty to ninety. Yeah. Okay. And then I'm writing the, this down. Okay. And then the humidity <laughs> range that's good for them is 40 to 90%. 40 yeah, they like it humid. Yeah. That's what I was told. And then I had, I had the tent, like <laughs> it was like really low for it. I mean, things happen out here. And yep. so I thought for sure I had killed them all. And I also had heard so, that if they get wet, they die too. What does? The, the sachets. Like if yeah, they yeah, get you don't wet. Want to let the sachets oh, yeah. get wet. 
Yeah, That's why okay. I was saying take them off. <laughs> that was the first Yeah, thing. I get yeah. that now. <laughs> I didn't know that though. I'm going to have so to get good going. knowledge for people if they, cause I've been like, for get sure. those Swirskis in there and people don't realize that you have to actually take care of your beneficials too. Yep. And I, I think the, if you get, if you consider those uh, banker, the banker plants, because I think the Swirsky eye as well oh, as yeah. the, we'll both live on. I think we're going to say bye-bye to Dr. Coco. Yeah, we're going to say bye Dr. Coco. Yeah, okay. guys. Sorry, I was trying to cut in here for like 15 minutes. So you guys were in a really interesting conversation. I didn't want to interrupt, but I'm uh, I'm really late, so I got to cut out. So I appreciate the spirit of collaboration. Come on over to CocoaForCannabis.com. Check us out. We publish articles on the science and practice of growing cannabis. I will see you guys all next week. Grower love. Growers love, love, boss. Growers love, man. Peace out, Doc. Bye, Doc. Happy growing. Take care, Doc. I think we're talking about spraying and, and not spraying uh, your sachets to avoid, you know, killing off your Swirsky population. Yep. Yeah. I, have a, I have a question. What are you guys allowed to spray in Canada? Like, what is the allowable list? Um, there is, you can actually access that on our Health Canada website. I don't know just offhand. I did study it in school, but it's in and out of my brain. When I talked to the ICM people at um, the commercial place that I grow at, she's basically told me that they can't use anything, but maybe, I think there's a handful of soaps. And then sulfur. I know they've sprayed sulfur. It's, it's hard to... Uh have a multi-tiered approach when there's so little science around like what people claim are bad for people. Right. So and the bugs the, I mean, too, the bugs, but, sorry. We yeah, have the so, wasps and the swirskies yep. and the, uh, the aurora. Uh, Aureus. Yes. They're like the little, I, they're bigger. I can see them. They're kind of black with stripes on them. Is that those? Little white, black and white like bugs? White dots, white wings. Those are wings, yeah. Yeah, they fly, yeah. and we have the yeah. parasitic wasps too, Those which are, are a lot smaller than I I thought. I was like, we have wasps in here. <laughs> yeah, I was. I had the same reaction when I saw them. I was like, oh, the, okay, I can handle these little guys. <laughs> sting me! Come sting me! Yeah, no. So you, you mentioned you mentioned neem earlier, and I want to make sure that we talk about neem because neem is something that's been widely used in agriculture for a long time. But it is definitely something that you have to be seriously careful with. Uh, there is a growing amount of anecdotal information, primarily right now, but there is more information coming out that some of the some of the people who are suffering from uh, cannabis hyperasmus disease are suffering mm -hmm. from actually from large amounts of neem. It's from neem exposure, actually, and I found I've found. Uh, see, I haven't found any actual research that supports that there are yep. anecdotal there's a whole bunch of anecdotal evidence but i yep. actually have found there is one study and i i shared it with uh, matt a couple of weeks ago it was an article what i shared with matt but it was in reference to a study about um no statistical correlation with neem yep. and hyper cannabis hyperemesis or yeah chs i guess is the easiest way to say it but i will say um if you look at uh, as a direct and poisoning, which is a thing, it very similarly relates to what we're seeing with people uh, anecdotally report about neem and the active right. ingredient in neem is as a So if they're consuming it at too high of a level, I think it wouldn't be too far fetched to think that CHS might be similar or related to 
be side I, effects. I, I, I completely disagree. I think that it's, it, there are, there are almost, I think there's three or four symptoms that are totally different. And um, I, I hate that I don't have the article on hand, but I encourage you guys to do a research just from the opposite perspective. Yep. And I can tell you that there are a number of growers. I will say, this isn't helpful, but I will say, I do remember hearing this exact thing on another podcast and uh, they broke it down to where, yeah, there's, yeah. there's total differences. It's not, it's kind of like similar this... to what they are coming out to say. It depends on the it's source of like the whole heat, too. like the whole heat thing in the shower that has nothing to do with the, on right. the totally different yeah. recovery, totally different. I mean, one of them lasts an hour, one of them lasts 24 hours. There's, there's like total different symptoms. And so I'm just, I'm going off of a good friend of mine who did run a large grow um, and he did use tons of neem and then he did, uh, you know, he wasn't using directly as a direct and he was specifically using neem oils and some other things in his grow. He had a lot of exposure to it and then he did come down with it. And now he can't, he had to take three months off of smoking. He couldn't smoke anything. He was getting constantly nauseous. And that hours was like the only thing that was was relieving it for him. Um, and then he stayed away, he didn't smoke for three months, and then he slowly started coming back to it. But he can only smoke things that have not been sprayed with anything. Um, so you know, I actually have a, there's a couple problems with neem, that's one of them. It's more anecdotal, like I said at the very beginning, that's how I introduced that. You know, it's a bit more anecdotal. There's definitely some, and I think there are people who have sensitivity to neem. And they Absolutely. will, they will yes. have an issue with it. There's they allergies to everything out there. Absolutely. Limonene and linalool, which are terpenes and cannabis, have definitely allergies. Yeah, the second thing is it's an antibiological, right? And I don't like to use anything in my soils that are going to kill biology. That's the opposite of what I'm trying now, to do. So, you, why, why is that the case, but you can feed your soil with... Uh, neem seed casings like why I don't, do I don't use neem, I don't use neem cake no, no not you not cake, you no neem seed uh, not you no um, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking yeah. of, a, of a grower well-known grower uh, Clackamas Coot who uh, who uses neem in his soil and he has yeah. some of the healthiest soil Whoa. biology yeah. Yeah. Neem oil. Teeth with yeah it's different yeah I was at the regenerative oh. conference. I'm curious, uh, what is it? A couple of years ago, and it was Dr. Elaine Ingram uh, with, uh, with Susan Wainwright <laughs> and Stephen Raisner and Joshua Rutherford, and that was the crowd that we had this conversation about neem about. And mm. one of the things was that they didn't like it because it was an antibiological. Another thing was that there are people who are definitely having reactions to it. And then the third thing is kind of back to some of the earlier conversation is you don't really know where that neem is coming from. That's you're getting important. Neem, you're getting neem from a lot of the time that's coming from India and yeah. it's, it's being important. You have no idea how it was raised and it is also a bioaccumulator. So you don't know if that was raised well and cleanly, you're not necessarily going to get a clean source product. And in some cases, I don't even know if you're actually getting neem. You're just getting this big pack, this bag of powder with some funny labeling on it that I can't even read. So um, there, there was Definitely. there was a number there was a number of people who uh, who were on that panel, uh, and that was kind of the conversation of the night because everybody was using it. I used to use neem cake in my mixes. Um, I know a lot of people use neem seed, neem mm. cake neem oil it's something that's been used in agriculture for a while um, but again i think if you can try to get stuff that's sourced locally 
yeah, to sure. use in your garden. You should do that and try to avoid bringing things in that are not. I will tell you firsthand, it is so hard to grow a neem plant in Northern California. Mm. Yep. I do uh, want to say there's one thing I did want to add right onto there too. And you kind of touched it a little bit, but it's, it, this, it's more than that. And actually at the same time, shout out to you brought Steve Reisner. He's in the chat right now, Potent Ponic. Yep. Shout, shout, shout out to him. But Absolutely. And he just brought, he, I saw it just pop up. It just brought it up. I've been waiting to jump in and he just brought it up is that, that the neem plant, I've got looking into this, the neem plant, actually, they use a lot of pesticides and they spray a lot of things on, on those trees. So um, it's more a concern in the oil, I think, than the cakes, but because the oil is like a concentrate. So we're concentrating all that. Yeah, sure. But, uh, um, yeah, but yeah, just consider your source. So of course, if you're, if you're sourcing it of your own, you know, like you're saying, you're trying to grow one or something. Okay. Well, I'm okay with it then, but I stopped using it because with this whole debate came up and I started looking into it and I went through the new to your own. Could you, um, go mute? Cool. Sorry guys. <laughs> but I also went to a regenerative conference. They wanted, they had in uh, Michigan, but, uh, and they brought that up and then, you know, that sparked my interest so i looked into it more yeah it was the insecticide thing and the pesticide thing and uh all that stuff that was kind of making me like well i don't need to use it there's better products out there I can't. Aaron, Aaron and i mentioned this in the live stream earlier that like and i alluded to it that like yeah that's a big thing the source absolutely the fact that sometimes things can be dosed through concentration and I'll tell you what, like that everything man fertilizer like i just got some kelp meal tested um you can check out my instagram i think a lot of people think kelp is like six to twelve percent sodium but i've sourced really good kelp meal and it's three percent sodium so i can continue to feed that to my soil without leaching everything out of there and maintain healthy biology before we switch topics about chs i don't care what causes it this is a cautionary tale because one of our panel members russ brandon had a close friend who's actually died from chs complications which when he was having the cyclical vomiting he was taking hot showers to relieve his symptoms and if you don't make sure to stay hydrated you can have i think it's like kidney or renal failure and that's what ended up happening with him and he had vomited so many times and taken so many hot showers that he sweat out all of his uh, liquids and several people have had severe complications where they get hospitalized for the complications more than the actual CHS in and of itself. So if you are having that cyclical vomiting and you're yeah. finding hot showers relieve your symptoms, make sure you are staying extremely well hydrated, not awesome. with just water, just using electrolytes and things like, like Pedialyte or Gatorade or something that is going to get you more hydrated than just water because you're losing way, way too much if you're vomiting that much and it can be very, uh, it can be fatal. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I, even I have had a, a, an hyperemetic response, but um, to be honest, it's not one that like lasted longer than like a day or something, or even like a few hours or several hours, really. It's a hellish experience, but you know, it's the, the thing I want to say this about like sort of symptomology and a sort of anecdotal evidence and, and even like non-anecdotal empirical evidence. Uh, I, I think that it's probably not a controversial point to say that there might be multiple things that we're calling CHS because they have similar enough symptoms or they're variable among the human population. Um, the, I mean, CHS as a symptom or as, or, as a, or as a syndrome, I suppose, a collection of symptoms can, be, can have multiple causes. Like this is true in IPM as well, uh, kind of damage 
can look very similar and have totally different or identical and have totally different causal agents. An insect piercing mouth part or somebody spraying alcohol so it looks like little dots or chemical burns looking like, um, you know, uh, heat damage. So I would invite that sort of like open-mindedness when it comes to considering that. And that's also, great, sorry, go ahead, Spartan. Okay, I was just say that's a great point. And at the same time, not only could there be multiple causes, but as we find often, even when we smoke cannabis and get different effects, um, if somebody had that disease, they could have different, you know, show different symptoms too, you know, maybe similar symptoms, but they might not have one or two of the pieces. So maybe that could explain some of that. Right. I wanted to bring up that there are certain people with sensitivities because like um, Clackamas Coot rightfully points out there are people that like brush their teeth with like neem oil based toothpaste. And mm -hmm. there are people in India that eat neem leaf every single day. Uh, Gandhi actually did it because in like Buddhism, it's a practice of eating something really bitter to give you like a frame of reference uh, to appreciate the sweet things and things like that. But um, at the same time with cannabis, we all know about or most of us may have heard of limonene and uh, linalool, which are two terpenes that are found in cannabis but are also found in like citrus or in lavender and i've seen uh white papers that actually discuss the implications of allergies to those two terpenes whether it's from cannabis or other things so certain people are just going to be more sensitive to certain things and even if they might us, benefit the majority of people yeah and let, let us me... not forget cannabis is exactly that it's a anti-cancer antibacterial i mean you put it in your body and it benefits you but not certain particular mechanisms or, or functions. So it has, it's, an, it has a listen. modulating effect that can be, uh, you know, positive for some things and negative for other things. Right? Let me just point out quickly, though, that, uh, I, yeah, they do use neem, they use the neem tree for a lot of stuff, and they do put it in their mouth and they brush their teeth with it. But when you burn stuff, it's a totally different chemical uh, thing happens. Sure. Like, with the mycobutanol, people eating it on grapes or whatever, it's not an issue. But when you go burning it, it's it's deadly. And I think, like, I don't spray anything but water on my plants. Occasionally, I'd like a compost, kind of compost tea. We won't go into that. But I don't want to put anything on my plants that uh, I'm going to end up consuming, especially like any oil. I want to put any kind of peppermint oil on my buds or even early flower because it'll stay. Like, oil seems to be any kind of oil i don't want to smoke it you know i don't want to try and burn and smoke any kind of oil and i, I do have a buddy that. a buddy of mine yeah. definitely has a, a i don't know if it's allergic or whatever it is but he he's gotten we've gotten weed here that smelled like neem oil you know through um wherever avenue we got it and yeah he got he gets all like um what are the hives and stuff and we pretty much determined it's the neem oil, but I think it's because he's allergic. People are just allergic, some I believe. I mean, if people are like it, like people have consumed it, we also got to take into consideration the fact that if a society has embraced, embraced it a little bit more, they may develop certain things within themselves that uh, where it, versus a society that doesn't interact with neem. Um, you know, some resistance to certain effects. Uh, I think at the end of the day. I mean, I've used neem in the past, and um, personally, it's probably my least favorite of any, uh, you know, application, to be completely honest. And since it is uh, so controversial that, you know, and we don't have anything solid, 
there's just no need to go that route because there's just so many other options in my opinion. So even if you're on the fence, leave it alone because you have so many other, uh, you know, uh, tools in your chest that you can use uh, that you just don't need to, it it just doesn't need to be, it it can be, it's gotta be, it can be a moot point if people just look at it that way. One Spartan mentioned earlier in the chat, but I think it should be discussed. I think Spinosad specifically is is banned in Michigan. I also think it's banned in California. And like Michelobutanol, I believe it may be okay on like food crops, but when it's inhaled through smoke, it is uh, carcinogenic. So it's worth noting those types of things. I, I saw it in the chat, but I know not everybody goes through and sees yeah. the messages in the chat. The, I think the re- it's important to point out that the reason those things are banned are very, very different. Michael Butanol is proven to cause cancer when when it's heated and, and, and inhaled, but Spinosad isn't and pyrethrin isn't. And pyrethrin is a uh, naturally occurring oil from uh, the current... Uh, the, uh, it's not oil, but yeah, it's a naturally occurring compound compound in um sorry in uh chrysanthemum flowers i think yeah they used to be called pyrethrin plants right pyrethrin daisies i think i can say that spinosad is banned it's on the ban list in michigan for commercial grow so people you'll be able to you'll be able to buy it in stores and people always say well you said this was banned no that you're buying it for vegetables (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) that's a different that's a different way you're taking it in you're not you're not eating cannabis what you mentioned aaron about like the the importance of like of that context i think is really salient right because why um but like why why you're using it and and in what context are people using it and why is it toxic and what's its mode of action and that sort of a thing is really important to consider. Um, the reason why somebody the reason why it might be not legal to use might have a lot less to do with the fact that people think it's one way or another and more logistical legislative like sort of like external issues the lawmakers are not the scientists right so there's some disconnect there sometimes there's a lot of disconnect there right many times i wanted to say something lawmakers being not being the scientists because i mean up here in canada i think there was a comment earlier about you know what is you know what can we use i mean it's so tough out here because um the the default is uh that they basically just ban everything unless they have a reason to allow it. And some things are not allowed to be sold or used up here only because the company has refused to put English and French on their labeling. You know, it could be a completely uh, beneficial uh, product uh, with, uh, you know, uh, widely used everywhere else, but because uh, there's been a whole bunch of things taken off the shelf here. Or and- or they haven't paid their, you know, $750,000 ecological FDA and, e- you know, EC this and that fees. You exactly. know, there's a lot of yeah. red tape and bureaucratic crap behind all of it. Yeah, so I don't know what it is ultimately. It, it seems to me that there's a much more wide range in the States. Here in Canada, they're completely... Uh, you know, yeah. they've handcuffed a lot of the home growers uh, with what they can and can't have access to. One thing I will say, a, really, you shouldn't use is cultural, cultural idiosyncrasy with the French and the English there. That's interesting. And mm. I, I would definitely say that. Oh, what were you going to say, Jack? 
I was just going to say, you, we really should not use Eagle 20, a.k.a. Microbutanol, because not only Never is, is it oh, yeah, carcinogenic when burnt, but on top of that, <laughs> the whole vape cart thing that people don't really acknowledge is not only does microbutanol is it carcinogenic on its own uh, when inhaled, but when it's heated, it turns into hydrogen cyanide. And hydrogen cyanide, not only is it carcinogenic, it can kill you at one to 2,000 parts per million. And after a certain amount of vape hits, you can literally just die from poisoning. So it's like, it's not just a cancer or a long-term thing. Like this can straight up kill you. It's so acutely toxic. Do not use acutely, equal twenty. Acutely toxic. And it's systemic. So when you clone that plant, you still have it. Yep. Yeah, and so uh, like these are the sorts of considerations that uh, are important. Like in California, for example, we talked about me and Aaron um, in the live stream earlier today that uh some things are they're they're not allowed simply because like you said like they don't have efficacy data in california california asked for efficacy data and that's a very expensive process um on the one hand you would probably a reasonable person might think that hey like maybe they should do this these trials to make sure these things are actually safe but other people will will guffaw and say well maybe that's true, but how are you going to expect people to bring to bear like sort of natural, more simpler compounds? Um, and they can't because they don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to prove one thing that maybe even a scientific report or three or 10 or 15 or a hundred show um, has great promise and even anecdotal evidence, but that's not really a, I mean, that's a, that's a political thing, right? That's a logistical bureaucratic thing. Often important to consider, though, it's uh, crazy that we're already kind of winding into the last 10 minutes here. Two hours of IPM. I don't know if uh, Spartan has to get running soon or not. Or, yeah. Uh... yeah, I got to get going, guys. I uh, looked down and my tray of weed's gone, so I got to grind more shit out. Reload. Priority. So... Yeah, I gotta jump on the other show, guys. So it was awesome hanging out. Love the show. And uh, I liked I liked your contribution. I like the points you made, and I really appreciate it. So sign out. All right. Growers love. See you guys. Bye. <laughs> Peace out. It's me and you, man. In fact, you can be found I mean, at Spartan Grown. Yeah, that's right. If you want to see his content, he's on Instagram at Spartan Grown. And like he says, he is uh, everywhere on the podcast, or at least many places that are really great. Um, should we just move into the ex- extra or the outro then, if that's the case? Did anybody have anything they wanted to say before we closed out or any topics that they felt like they uh, wanted to throw something in there that didn't get wrapped up? Well, okay then. <laughs> well, there was a question in the chat. I don't know if we want to open it up this late in the show, but there was a question about PGRs. Uh, I can't remember who was uh, had asked it. PGRs suck. A topic. Super bad. I'd love to hear your thoughts on PGRs. A lot of growers in the UK are using them. Well, there's it's, natural peach. We shouldn't go into this, actually. We've, it's probably, yes, uh, probably like, not prudent. Yeah, we'll have to do another show on that one. That's for sure. We have actually covered it in the past. We have. um, That's true. So just listen to our entire videography and find it. (laughs) (laughs) And you can find it. (laughs) No, um, I think think we're getting the general gist of what the panel thinks. Certainly, I think that um, 
you know, an art- artificial PGRs are problematic. Unnecessary. No bueno. Okay, cool. So let, why don't we just start the outro then? I really enjoyed um, this this uh, session. I appreciated everyone who was on. I appreciate you being on, Aaron and uh, Hota and Miss Nudie Grows and um, Ken, Ken, Jack and the American One and Noah the Groa and also um, Shane. I appreciate you bringing all of us together. You're welcome. And, yeah, well, thank you. And so anyways, I'm Matthew Gates. I'm an integrated pest management specialist. You can find my content on YouTube channel Zenthanol, where I make pest primer videos and uh, cannabis physiology videos and all these really cool stuff. Um, I also am on Instagram at SyncAngel. And yeah, oh, Zenthanol.com too, if you are interested in working with me professionally. Miss Nudie, sign off. Alrighty. Thanks so much for having me on tonight. It's been fun. I definitely wanted to learn about the thrips, especially since I'm so involved with them right now in my business and pleasure life. Um, so I appreciate all the information tonight. Uh, I'm sure you'll see me again. I'll see you guys again. I'm going to sign out and we have May long weekend activities going out in my acreage here. So I'm uh, follow follow me. Go on to my stories. They've been lit. We had a cat climbing a pole. A cat came down a pole. There's uh, like BMXing going on. So I'll get into all that. And uh, you guys have a good night. That sounds really cool. <laughs> um, Hota. Hey, thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. Always awesome to uh, chat with the crowd and uh, get on here. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it and appreciate all you uh, all you out there for uh, joining us for the chat. So I'm at Hota Herb. Uh, you can check me out on Instagram. That's the best way to find me. So uh, take care, everybody. Have a great evening. I really enjoyed your um, your permacultural and ecological insight. Appreciate that, man. Yeah. Um, Ken, Ken, what's up? Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I always love, obviously, being on here with my, um, you know, the panelists that have uh, been here for a long time. But I love having um, new perspectives. You know, with Hota joining us uh, last few weeks, and also uh, ATG Acres. Uh, appreciate you. Uh, you know joining and sharing and chiming in it's it's always really fun so um appreciate that and i appreciate the chat of course and if anybody wants to check out what i'm doing uh mostly uh, almost entirely on the hydroponic end uh then go ahead and check me out on uh, my youtube can can grow and on my instagram and it's can can grow everywhere so uh thanks a lot Yeah, I really appreciated that um, that perspective, and I liked the input that you had. I'm saying that for everyone because it's just true. Um, this was a really good session, good audience uh, interaction as well. I really appreciate it, man. Especially since you have you and Missy, uh, Miss Nudie, have higher latitude uh, insight. Uh, Aaron, what's up? What's up, man? Uh, I really appreciate you guys having me and. Just really uh, love learning and sharing back feedback with the community. I kind of like playing the devil's advocate. So I like being able to do that with like an intelligent crowd and you guys are all that. And uh, yeah, just really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you guys.
follow me at ATG Acres on Instagram only. I don't I don't like social media in general, so just Instagram if you like me. <laughs> I appreciated it quite a bit too. I'm glad that you uh, seem to jive very well with the panel. Thank you. The American one. Hey, man. Hey, Matthew. Thanks for hosting tonight. Shout out to Shane for bringing us here. Um, I love cannabis. I love discussing all things cannabis. Uh, it was great, great discussion. Um, I caught your little uh, IG live with uh, ATG Acres. That was great earlier. Um, great having him here. Thanks. And it's good to see Nudie and Hoda and uh, everyone in chat. Shout out. It was really good tonight. Thanks. Oh, you can find me on, you know, YouTube, the American one and on IG. You can find me. Very excellent. Um, and Noah the Grower, how goes it? It goes good. Yeah, I didn't get a chance. I didn't want to interrupt the flow of the conversation today. But uh, yeah, I had a good time listening to everybody. I always learn stuff. Um, yeah, I just want to say, uh, if anybody has any questions about growing, I've been doing this for a long time. You're more than welcome to stop by my page to try and help everybody out. Uh, I love it very much. And, um, I love being here with a lot of other people that are into what I'm into. So, uh, thanks for Shane bringing everybody together and, uh, everybody have a good night. Thanks a lot, Noah. I appreciate it. Um, and Jack, finally. Thank you for having me. I also was uh, listening quite a bit tonight, and I'm right there with you, Noah. I learned a lot and enjoyed the conversation. Aaron of ATG Acres, thank you for coming. Uh, Hota, great to see you as well. Miss Nudie, glad to have you back. I was watching that story and uh, thankful that Peach, the cat, after two days on top of that pole is safe and sound, and you guys can have your uh, wake and bakes again. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in in the chat, specifically Potent Ponics Steve. I've been a fan of uh, his show, Potent Ponics on YouTube for a while and he's a pretty awesome dude and great grower and very knowledgeable person. So awesome to see him in the chat as well as all the regulars. You all know who you are. It's, it'd be too long if I sat here and named off every one of you, but I've been shouting you out in chat all night. So much love to everybody and uh, at Jack Greenstock signing out. Well, all right then. I really like this session. I'll just reiterate that. And I guess I'll see you all next week. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And growers love for Dr. MJ. Yeah, growers love. Have a great week. Happy everyone. growing. Take care, everybody. Bye. Take it easy.